Down in Front Podcast, the official podcast of downinfrontpodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining. If this is your first time actually hanging out with us, we want to say thank you so much. Uh, we hope that you like our show. And of course, we hope you have a drink in your hand because tonight we are going to be reviewing The Favorite, one of the newest films by Yorgos Lanthimos. I'm pretty sure I killed that pronunciation. And what we normally do here on the podcast is we review a bunch of different movies, TV shows all over our nice or one of our fanciest or favorite uh, alcoholic beverages or tea. We've been getting to a lot of tea, so you'll be talking about a lot of David's tea, but not tonight. Uh, I have a super cast with us here, so I'm super excited to talk about this. So we're going to start the round table with my best friend. We grew up together. We go way back. Uh, and we're pretty sure that he has been on more podcast episodes than I have. <laughs> Brylin, Mouth of the South, what's going on, man? How you doing? What are you sipping on tonight, and what else have you been watching? How's it going this evening, everyone? I am here. Uh, what I'm sipping on right now is, since we're talking about the favorite tonight, I decided to grab my favorite whiskey, Gentleman Jack, right there. And uh, what I've been watching recently, it's been tough to watch things other than uh, movies we're going to review. But in the short time I have, I think I've uh, I went ahead and canceled my DC Universe membership um, because I think I got my fill of Titans for the most part. It was the only thing I was using the app for. Um, I'm, I would say it's not a bad show. Uh, it's decent. So it. If you like the CW superhero shows, I'm sure you enjoyed this. Or even if you liked Gotham, you'd enjoy this because it's kind of like a blend of both. Uh, but sometimes, like some of the characters are just a little um, undercooked in the personality <laughs> <laughs> personality zone, especially uh, the lead character uh, of Dick Grayson, Robin. Uh, he he is definitely lacking. He's probably the weakest part, but. The other characters are very colorful. It's really cool to see all these uh, lesser-known DC characters get to shine in some capacity. So I appreciate that. Uh, and I think overall the DC Universe app just it needs some time and it needs some work done to it for it to be something that's viable and worth the investment. Uh, other than that, I decide to uh, start watching uh, House of Cards Season 6. I know it came out a while. I just haven't had time to get to it. And I watched the first episode, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's neat to have Robin Wright at the center of everything now. The, the Episode 1 is definitely a setup episode. It's a bit of a mystery about how they're going to take it. But one thing that really surprised me is uh, how much they're actually having uh, Frank Underwood involved in the story. Uh, so that's a very curious plot point. I'd like to see how they... Um, how they actually conclude that as well. Oh, nice. I mean, I'm kind of bummed because I still, and I know Dom's going to hate me for this comment and I'm sure other people, but I've still have yet to see an episode of that show. 
But I heard it's great. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, I hear it's great. It's just, it's just too much. It's like what seven? It's like six seasons. It's season six, but twelve episodes each. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, yeah. nowadays, I guess that's a lot. It's always a lot. What do you mean nowadays? I mean, it used to be that shows would last for twelve years and have twenty-four episodes each. You're not wrong. You are not wrong. So. All right. Well, as always, it's great to see your face. It's great to hear Thanks. your input. I'm super curious to uh, hear your kind of review of this actual movie. So we're going to toss it over to our super, very special guest. She was actually uh, – this is her second podcast, so she's already kind of coming up on the ranks. Uh, the lovely Emma. Emma, what's going on tonight? Uh, what you sipping on tonight and what else have you been watching? Well, first of all, what makes you think I haven't done a podcast in between? Not I our podcast. I could have been busy. <laughs> um, I'm sipping on an Oyster Bay Sauvignon Blanc. And I recently wa- started watching a show that a lot of people I really trust have been telling me to watch for a long time, which is Shit's Creek. And it has not disappointed. That show makes me just straight cackle. Uh, especially uh, the mom who's cat is it Catherine Hera or O'Hara? Um, she's amazing. Uh, there's a lot of wigs uh, in her show, which she names. Um, but it's like really, I like it because it's really funny. Um, but it's kind of sweet, but not in that way. That, like, for example, I thought that Parks and Rec got like too sort of like saccharine towards the end. So I like Chits Creek because it's still cutting, kind of. There's really they're kind of mean at times, but ultimately it is like kind-hearted. So I'm really glad I finally gave in and started watching that. And where do you watch that on? It's on it's on Netflix right okay. now. Got it. Yeah, I was looking at that. I was like, I'm pretty sure I heard of the show, but I'm def- I of course haven't seen it just yet. But it looks funny. Well, it's always great to have you on our second episode of the podcast. So I appreciate your input, especially because you were very excited about this movie. Um, uh, I am the Warren. I will be the host for this evening. I am currently sipping on a red blend called Paxis. And this bottle and this wine label is amazing. So I definitely want to make sure that I put it on the show notes because it's pretty hilarious. Uh, A little dog that's like just tired of life. We feel you. I feel you. Uh, and so I've been watching a bunch of stuff, um, but I the only thing I do want to say that what I've been watching, and I think I have uh, thrown the towel in on the Romanoffs. I think we had uh, episode seven or episode six that we ended yesterday. And it was a Mexico City episode that really just was like, okay, I'm done. It was already bad enough that I was really trying to – I was really trying. I really love Matthew – um, whiners, um, stuff, especially because we love, you know, Mad Men, but there's still like some brilliant things. There's, I can see that there's like some artistic ability for the show itself, but it's just very boring and it doesn't make any sense. So I'm just kind of a bummer. Uh, Brylin, what do you think so far? I think you finished the Romanoffs, right? Uh, no, I think, I, I think I was actually starting to watch, uh, that episode you're talking about <laughs> last night. And then I realized I had some other things I had to do. So I was like, I don't have 90 minutes. I'm sorry. And so I had to just go do something, but yeah, it, it is a, I think it is a chore to get through this because they are, it's like 
trying to watch eight movies back to, I mean, one after the other, and that's rough. Um, I think there's some episodes that I've seen so far that uh, I love the story, and I think it's awesome, and it shines. Probably the one that stands out is the one with John Slattery and Amanda Amanda Peet. It's probably the best one. Um, And But also there's a... It did... It does start to feel like they're tr- there's just telling the same story over and over in each uh, episode, and I was just getting a feeling like I'm not really caring about the setup of these characters, even though their dialogue is pretty cool. And that was ultimately where I got. Maybe one day I'll finish it. I don't know when that'll be, though. <laughs> uh, Emma, how about you? What do you think of the Romanoffs? Yeah, I'm like so disappointed, and I'm. I'm nervous that it's going to color my obsession with Mad Men because I think I've really given, I mean, I've thought Mad Men was so genius and whenever characters on Mad Men were the worst, I always gave Matthew Weiner the benefit of the doubt and thinking, Oh, okay. But he's worse. He's they're supposed to be the worst. He knows that they're the worst. He's kind of, you know, making a judgment on them. And now it's like, Ooh, maybe, some of these assholes were actually like aspirational for him. Like, especially I think the episode about um, the sexual, you know, assault issues was really, really. Is that the like, piano teacher one? The piano teacher oh, one. Yeah. Uh, really ill-advised, especially, you know, with the fact that, you know, he's had some issues on that front. So it just, yeah, I really kind of, and maybe it's just like, all right, when he's talking about people from the 50s and 60s, he can seem really kind of evolved. But when he jumps to the present, he doesn't look so great in his perspective. Mm. Do you think you're going to finish the show? I, I kind of want to. I want to, like, have a full picture, especially because I actually I did love that Amanda Pete episode. And so if there's any more lurking like that. I'd like to see them, but I'm really annoyed by how long they are when they're, they're not good enough to deserve the length. That's true. And and so that is, if you do want to watch it, you know, that is the Romanoffs. That's actually on Amazon prime for right now streaming. Um, It was crazy because that show got a lot of um, uh, marketing for it. And it was like kind of everywhere. It felt like at one point and then it just kind of disappeared. I think homecoming took over. Uh, and Marvelous Miss Maisel also took over, so I, I guess that yeah. makes that makes sense because both of those shows are better. So okay. maybe maybe there's a Romanoffs episode with um, Tony Shalhoub in it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, see, I would oh, I would I would go back and finish it. if 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 there's no Tony Shalhoub, I'm I'm done. I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> cancel my Amazon Prime subscription. Yeah, right. Who I'm kidding? I order from all the time. <laughs> And so with that, let's actually go ahead and raise our glasses. And so we want to do a bit of a shout outs or what we like to call a send a sip. Uh, so we want to actually go ahead and give some shout outs of uh, who are you sending a sip to tonight here, Brylan? I'm going to send my sip over to the OGs of sending out sips, uh, the Friends with Blends. Uh, lately on their social media account, they've been doing the 12 Days of Wine Miss or something like that. But it's uh, really cool to see them showcase these different wines they recommend for the holiday season. Uh, I think it's a neat, um, clever way to just, like, get in the holiday spirit. So here's to y'all for recommending some really cool wines. 
Thank you. Definitely shout out to Derek uh, and Megan for starting that. I just kind of hit on their cocktails and just call it 12 Days of Wine. So. It's, 12 days wine. <laughs> no wine miss, but wine miss does sound really funny. Yeah, so it is 12 days around of get people more involved into drinking more wine. And I remember when we did this, not last year, man, actually, you've been doing this for like three, four years now. Hmm. Not last year, but we did this before. We were in like a uh, a blog in somewhere in Minnesota. So I got to get that and frame it because it was hilarious. So, Emma, who are you sending your sip to tonight? Well, I would say just someone who's been making me laugh really hard is um, Twitter celebrity Natalie Walker. She, her handle is N walks and she does these amazing audition videos um, of just really stereotypical, particularly female characters. Um, she has a whole thread of them and I highly recommend looking her up uh, and watching that thread because they're really brilliant and they just consistently make me lose my shit. So, N-Walks. Well, thank you much, N-Walks. That sounds hilarious. Uh, my sip is going to go to uh, the people over at Encroachment, which is a podcast about football and a bunch of other random stuff. But uh, thanks so much, Ricky and Michelle, for having me on. Um, that was a hilarious episode. I really had a good time. Uh, I think it was one of the longer episodes I think they've done, maybe. Uh, but thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm always down and open to talk about sports, especially when people are asking me about Buffalo Bills because I have a lot of useless facts about them because I've supported them for maybe too long. But I don't have any gray hair, so I'm good. So I don't feel mind it. So thanks so much, Encroachment. Hmm. And with that, we're going to give uh, a bit of a break. So we are now almost in our spoiler section. So if you have not seen The Favorite, it's currently in theaters right now. I guarantee you this will be in theaters for a very long time, or at least it should. Um, I was a little bummed because it felt like I could only find it at um, independent theaters when I was in Chicago. I literally had to walk uh, maybe uh, maybe a mile and a half, which passed two AMCs just to see this movie. So it's kind of weird. It looks like it's in like larger theaters itself. Uh, definitely go check out this movie. Definitely come back. You hit pause. Come back. We're going to get and start talking about all the things that we love about this movie. So we will see you soon for a full spoiler section of The Favorite. <laughs> And read the Down in Front podcast. I have Brylan. I have Emma. I'm super excited. We are in our spoiler section. So if you have not seen The Favorite, we will be spoiling the movie for you. And this is probably a movie that you don't want to be spoiled on because it's so enjoyable. So definitely go check this out in theaters. Um, so this movie was actually written, uh, made, and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Mm, two for two. Uh, I'm super excited because the writer of this movie, this is her first writing credit of Deborah Davis. Um, and I actually saw a couple of articles that talks about how she really had a huge sort of um, point to actually put a lot of things in this movie. And the dialogue, I don't know if it was because of Rachel Weiss or Emma Stone or Olivia Coleman was absolutely amazing. Um, but I just love the fact that I would just, I can just like sit here and just listen to them just deliver lines, which is great. So super excited about the writing. I mean, Olivia Coleman in this movie, Emma Stone's in this movie, Rachel Weiss in this movie, Nicholas Holt, who I absolutely love uh, way back from when this dude was on Broadway for the uh, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. So this dude's amazing. So that's my nerdy spiel here. Um, well, the way that we're going to be talking it out is the actual acting and the characters as we usually do. And then we're going to break off in a little bit and talk about the director. So we're curious to see like his creative, like, 
Like, what do you think that his spin on this movie, especially because he's a fairly new director? He only has maybe four or five movie titles under his belt. So, as always, I'm going to toss it over to Brylin. It says, Brylin, talk to me about the acting and the characters of The Favorite. Yeah, so I think when it comes to this movie, it's only fair to start with uh, the Queen herself, Queen Anne, uh, Olivia Coleman. Um, up to this point, I thought all this year, no one was going to get near what Charlie's Throne did in Tully, but Olivia Coleman just, I mean, mind-bogglingly gives an incredible performance in this film. Um, it's really cool to see how. We're introduced to Queen Anne as kind of like a very childish, um, just absent-minded leader of her country uh, in, uh, in this uh, kind of struggling times with like deciding whether or not to continue a war or uh, actually start to recede it and go with diplomacy. Uh, but also it's uh, really cool to see just the depth that they take this character that even though this is a comedy that there are some very um incredible moments that actually just continue to grow at this summer throughout the movie which is really neat like one thing that really stands out to me is like her struggle with gout and it begins like her giving the command to rub my legs was first about just tending to the gout and then it grows into something that's sexual and then it grows into something that's uh, demeaning towards people. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how they continue, how she continues to be able to give that same command, but it's always different what her intentions are every single time. Um, And this is, it's also amazing that even in this, her twilight as a queen and everything uh, that, that Olivia Coleman's able to give this grace that's still there for her character, no matter if uh, she's disheveled and just woke up and her hair is terrible, or if she's in front of uh, Parliament and all, and having to get into those unbearable trusses that they had to actually put her in, uh, that um, that she's queen no matter what in this movie, which is really cool. And the whole movie is all about the queen's favor. How do you win that? How do you actually, how do you manipulate that? How do you, uh, uh, how do you actually become like that companion and that consort to the queen? Uh, but also in the end, we find out it's ultimately the queen's choice. And it's also the queen's command of what actually determines that. And even though you may be able to put in some very clever like cutthroat backstabbing to people that are already in positions of power with the queen. And then you're able to destroy them in case of Emma Stone's character um, that ultimately in the end, you probably are not in the queen's favor unless you have the queen's love. And it's, Mm. it's a gross realization that you are probably nobody unless you actually get uh, her love. And that is in the way Olivia just goes through this movie, just kind of bringing all these. It could, she at one more moment she can be very upfront, very hilarious and goofy, but in the next moment, very subtle and just thought provoking and just full of depth of what that character is all about. So uh, I hope she wins every single award that she gets nominated for for this performance. It is uh, astounding what she does. I mean, I can't agree with you more. I mean, that was such a, 
that was like a perfect summation of not only the movie itself, <laughs> but Olivia Coleman. And I love the fact that you talked on, you know, Emma Stone and you talked a little bit about maybe like Rachel Weiss, but she was great. I mean, I, I felt it very difficult for me to kind of focus on one particular character, especially when they're in the scenes together. Um, and I'm like, well, I don't want to miss anything. So I'm trying to focus on Emma Stone or Rachel Weiss or Olivia Coleman because they're all doing some great things all at once. And it's just all kind of wrapped up together. So I really, really like the fact that they are full acting chops was happening. But I love the fact that, you know, it was all Olivia Coleman. I mean, yeah. from her character, like being sweet and being salty. And then at the same time, as weak as she was, she still had crazy amounts of power so she can still command a presence even showing or at least her dialogue was not matching her presence on the screen because she was saying something weak but she was still a very powerful character itself and everybody else around her actually um, saw that except for these two characters right we talked about Abigail and we talked about Lady Sarah and so those other two characters were just kind of vying for you know who's better in the particular kind of time Um, also Harley played by Nicholas Holt his he had also had a little bit different character, but everybody else to the queen was super respective. Uh, Rebecca's respected to her. So um, I thought that was great. Yeah. And and it's also just amazing to see like a lot of the uh, attention is focused on like this battle of wits between Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone going back and forth through the movie. And even with them doing what they're doing, Olivia Coleman is just like this huge presence that, they cannot get out from under that no matter what they fight for or anything, it's all up to her in the end, which is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, what, you, what you got about Olivia well, Coleman? Oh, well, first of all, Brylon, that is so well said. Um, I love that lens of the, the leg rubbing that that's exactly right. She, the same command and three very different, um, you know, motivations behind it and completely different feelings around it. I thought she nailed sort of the the irony of being so powerful but so powerless because she's so sort of objectified. And I thought another another view of that was through the bunnies. So mm. they kind of they cue her up as this very childish I, I mean just just she just nails it. She's like a toddler. You can just these very minor gestures and facial expressions and sort of pouts. And she's giving you, you know, toddler and tantrum mode. And so you're like, okay, well, that's the side of, you know, sort of celebrity where they their growth is stunted because, you know, no one will be real with them. Um, and then the other side, then so then they eventually sort of reveal that the bunnies represent, you know, all of her miscarriages and stillbirths and the children that she's lost. Mm. And that, to me, sort of showed, okay, well... No one has taken her pain seriously either. No one has taken, you know, her own life and personal tragedy seriously. I mean, no one sees her as fully human. And then, and so the bunnies end up being, oh, actually, you know, she's a real person and she's really been through some shit. And what I loved was that neither um, Lady Sarah or, you know, so Lady Sarah doesn't give the bunnies the time of day and that really pisses Queen Anne off. And then... Um, Abigail sees that and so then pretends that she's obsessed with the bunnies so that Queen Anne will love her and it was really tragic to me that 
you know, they're both sort of pandering to her and neither of them is seeing her as, as a full human. Even Mm -hmm. when she feels love, you know, periodically, she feels like she's loved and on this pedestal, but she's not being seen for just her own humanity. And I mean, to thread that needle is just unreal. I thought she was so funny and so tragic and so brilliant. So I completely agree. She deserves everything. Yeah. I would say, um, with, uh, some of the other characters, like we mentioned, Lady Sarah and Abigail, um, yeah, their, their competition amongst one another was a lot of fun and everything. Uh, it, I think Game of Stones, uh, uh, portrayal of like her introduction of Abigail is done really well that this is a very uh, don- downtrodden girl she was a lady at one time but her dad like lost her in a gambling debt which is uh, I mean it's just the most it, it's like can I really believe that and then it's like when it comes to historical accuracy that's actually pretty accurate and it's actually kind of sad and cruel that that actually happened back yeah. then. um and that she's like falling into mud and like the mud's full of shit and everything. Having to walk into the queen's castle in that type of uh, disarray is, I mean, you have to have huge cojones to carry on through that because who knows when your head's going to get cut off for like disrespecting the queen at any moment. Um, but it's, um, but I think uh, I would say at first I was kind of like an Emma Stone's corner. I wanted her to see, like, get back to that ladyship that she had, get back to a station that's befitting of her mannerisms and everything. Uh, but also, and I thought Rachel Weiss was, like, kind of like the, um, the, the bad guy of this story. But, yeah, we find out who the real, uh, real evil person is by the end of this. I think they're um, both. I think to, they're all. I thought they were. I, I thought. I thought we found out that none of them are good characters at all. I I think it's more of the tale of that seventeenth century. Like even like if you're in high esteemed uh, regard and like in this gilded uh, house that no one else is going to have a um, eye into. That hey no matter how wealthy or refined you feel you are, cruelty is cruelty mm-hmm. in any human being. And so, um, yeah, Rachel Weiss, yeah, very opportunistic. Uh, I mean, she, she actually uh, befriended the queen to, and is like using her as a, uh, as a tool to get her uh, way of getting ministers of parliament elected and getting uh, war funds uh, appropriated and having her, husband's army be the front line to push through for uh this uh this war that they have going on with france and um and yeah she is very manipulative and cunning and it's also something where if you're in that position like even though she's a uh she's a lady of the she's like she i forget that what the actual name of her role is but she's I mean, the top lady of ladies because she's basically the queen's direct aide. And in this world here in the 17th century, even if there is just a queen and you're a high-profile lady, it is a man's world when it comes to that parliament. And to be, and she has to actually build out those ways of being able to manipulate those political machinations and 
be able to actually come out on top. And yeah, she's very selfish about what she does. There's no, there's no, uh, no hiding who she is. And I think that's why you kind of have to respect lady Sarah a little bit more than Abigail because she's, she's going to be cruel. She's going to be manipulative and she's not going to hide it. She's going to actually show who she, who, what her colors are. Um, even after she gets dragged through, uh, miles and miles of land off a horse after being knocked out by some poison, um, She's going to stand up and say, like, oh, you're going to make me a hooker? Hell no. <laughs> I'm going to have you all killed before that happens. Um, but I thought that was but, interesting um, because I thought that, you know, we find out, unless I was mistaken, but I thought that it seemed that Lady Sarah was basically stealing from the queen this entire time. And she was just stealing that money. Was that? Do you think that was true? Do you think that Foss during that reveal in the end when Abigail tells the queen? Uh, I think that was more manipulation by Abigail. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Was she stealing from the queen? Probably. She probably was taking a little cut and saying, yeah, one for me, one for them, one for me, one for them. Uh, but still was all about like making sure her house and her family uh, stays top dog in the British royalty. Uh, and that's what I think that is uh, what she thought her obligation was to her house. And then she, I think she actually had true love and feelings for the queen as well as Queen Anne had for her on some level. They both loved each other as well. Mm. Um, and then when it comes to Abigail, I mean, they, uh, Emma Stone expertly plays it up that, um, that she is someone that is one willing to put in the hard work to get back to her station and wanting to be um, wanting to get into a ladyship again and even setting up a marriage with someone that she doesn't really care about at all um, was a way for her to actually get back to a position of power. Um, but also at the end, we see that um, Abigail ultimately is not this, downtrodden individual that she probably has been very cruel and manipulating people even before she got to the castle and that she has always uh, just tried to find her way through life and actually um, just destroy people's lives to make it happen. And Rachel can see right through her at the beginning, which is awesome. And What's more awesome is Emma Stone's performance makes us believe. No, Rachel, Ra- um, Lady Sarah is just uh, Lady Sarah is just jumping to conclusions about her and everything, and um, and ultimately, yeah, Lady Sarah is right about this. And we see how Abigail gets to that position where she accuses Lady Sarah of embezzlement and um, and using the Queen's name uh, in a in a in a uh, non honorable way, which is why her and her husband get excommunicated from England and uh, banned from the country. Gratefully, they weren't actually killed because of that, because that is like a killable offense in a lot of uh, time, uh, especially back in this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's amazing to see, like, once Abigail gets in that level of power and becomes that top aide for the queen, that she doesn't treat it with the respect that Lady Sarah does. She uses it to, for her own just uh, very, very selfish reasons. So we 
ultimately find out that Abigail gets in the station of power and uh, she uses that station to uh, just throw all these very selfish parties in. Uh, ultimately, we find we see her uh, that she is just an evil human being that she starts torturing these bunnies. That means so much more to the queen because of uh, they're representative of all these miscarriages and lost children that she has. And that um, that is that is something that no matter what you do to the queen, the queen can tolerate a lot. But once you torture literally the embodiment of her children, you become less than human to her. And the way and it's just beautiful and brilliant how that last scene ends up just uh, Abigail gets her come up and it's pretty much that uh, that uh, that the queen ultimately sees who she is and probably already knew who she was too. And it's like, all right, you're going to be here with me. I'm going to treat you the way I think you should be treated, which is you're less than human. And I thought that was amazing. Emma, what you got? Yeah, I, I think it was so brilliant how, um, you kind of are set up to think, Oh, um, Lady Sarah's, you know, so manipulative and controlling, and Abigail's sort of more, and then it sort of flips out on Ted. And I thought it just, oh, it was so, it was so fascinating to see, like the two different dynamics of, all right, neither one of these relationships is really healthy, and neither one of these women, Lady Sarah or Abigail, is like really, you know, a hero. But I thought the history with Lady. Sarah um, and the queen was, it was like, yeah, it was manipulative and controlling, but it was almost like organically. So it was almost like if, you know, the, they had grown up in a different time and the, the gen or the genders had been swapped or the power roles had been different. They would still have had that dynamic. It just seemed like it was kind of like they tell the origin story of, you know, Lady Sarah being, um, and it just seems like that was their dynamic organically. And so, Obviously, it's magnified by the fact that Queen has all this power and no real interest in executing it. But I could envision, you know, maybe if, um, you know, Lady Sarah were a man and the Queen, the queen were still the Queen, you know, he might be still sort of pulling the strings, but it wouldn't necessarily be. It just kind of seemed, especially once they reveal who Abigail really is, organic and there is a real connection and they do kind of know each other in a way that I don't think anyone else real about it whereas Abigail and again going back to the bunnies you know I think Lady Sarah like that was almost a strength that she wasn't going to pretend that she gave a shit about the bunnies like that was almost her being real with the queen yeah um and so then when Abigail is like fawning over them and then like oh gonna crunch one I mean it's really telling um, I thought the scene uh, where Emma Stone is giving is like giving a hand job to her new husband, and just she she's just sort of spouting off her plotting, and then she like re- is giving him a hand job, and her face. I would love to see how that was written because that was just such a genius setup to show she is really, you know, driven and single minded, and in a way she kind of beat, you know, that was what you were supposed to be judging Lady Sarah about in the beginning was that she's kind of power hungry and she's, you know, so driven and focused. 
and she's manipulating people to that end. But it was almost like Abigail was one step ahead of her because she was doing that same shit and, you know, covering it up really well. And, you know, maybe if Lady Sarah had been a little more, a little less organic about who she was, you know, she could have gotten away with her shit. Also, I think I did read the, um, the stealing as just Abigail trying to get rid of her. And I thought that was another great acting moment on Emma Stone when she says that to the queen and the queen is kind of like not buying it. And she immediately gets so flustered and is like, oh, you know me, you know, I can't do numbers or I'm sure I just did the math wrong. And that's like one of the only times you see sort of a crack in her like veneer. And I just Mm -hmm. I thought that was brilliantly acted as well. Yeah, I'm still curious because I like how it was – I feel like it was vague, at least to me. I thought it was kind of vague and I was taken on the side of – right before that sequence, I think uh, Queen Anne, you know, Olivia Colden's character had mentioned that, you know, she would – no, excuse me. Before Lady Sarah left, she would say that I would never lie. I would never lie and kind of – it was kind of reinforced with Queen Anne and then it's found out just by – like looking at some books that, you know – was she stealing from her? Because it's still possible. And the the acceptance that Lady Sarah gets once – she already knew what was going to happen. She already knew exactly what's happening. So she knew – it felt like, okay, I know I'm guilty this entire time, but nobody has found out. And so mm-hmm. when um, Lord Marlborough and her just like sitting there and she see them kind of rolling up, she was like, okay, you know what? Actually, I it's feel like we're going to – yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, oh, you know what? <laughs> Let's go on a trip. Let's leave England. Um, I was getting the sense that she, finally she got caught um, from that sort of thing, or it could be something to find that you know maybe Emma Stone's character um, Abigail finally think that you know she actually won. Um, I thought it was kind of curious. There was always kind of dialogue back and forth between um, Abigail and Lady Sarah about winning and losing and winning and losing. Um, and it was curious because Abigail thought that it was all about winning, and she was like, "That's not. It's 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 something much more, sort of thing." So um, I do like that particular kind of instance of it. Definitely felt like Lady Sarah cared for cared for her as a person, but mm-hmm. like you both said, they both took advantage for her. You know, one killed her with kindness, the other one was just straight up and being honest with her. But both of them took advantage as a in the fragile state sometimes. You know that the queen was going to be in, um, and I thought that was. Uh, a great call out for all three of the actresses, especially especially on the screen. I thought that was great. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also uh, like uh, also really done by well by Emma Stone. That uh, I, I mean, we are we are led on to believe. I mean, Abigail is just taking a chance here to kind of get her leadership back, see if she can get back to being a lady some way somehow. And we find like um, that. What really speaks to her evilness is that once she gets the ladyship, even though Lady Sarah disapproves of it and everything, and she can give her disapproval and she's freely giving her disapproval about that, um, it's not where Abigail stops when she Mm -hmm. does become a lady. It's like, uh, no, I'm going to flat out destroy you even though you've never done anything to me. It's not revenge. It's not avenging her father or anything. She even admits her father was a piece of shit. Um, it's about, I just want to destroy. And that's the cruelty we see out of Abigail. That's much different than Lady Sarah. Yeah, that's a good call out. I was, uh, I was kind of bummed that it felt, it was such a, 
such a like she has so much kind of hubris and like overpower like i was thinking for sure that the way that this movie was gonna go she comes to power and they can both live and it's kind of some banter but she definitely took it further especially poisoning her i thought that was kind of messed up um so she definitely kind of took it to kind of poisoning her for uh lady sierra to kind of fall off her horse and it felt like even when she came back she had to do something even more drastic so that's what i was curious to see if that stealing from her was a lie or not um and it made it seem like because almost every sequence we find Abigail um, at first was reading and it looks like she was reading and studying up a, a good amount of information. I wonder if she was like sitting on that gym for a while until she can like have the best moment to kind of play her, you know, ace in the hole. So that's what I kind of picked up from that. Yeah. And, and props to Rachel Weiss for even after getting a hideous scar on her face that uh, she's still able to look very regal and everything just with that. <laughs> That lace bandage of her eyes. That that lace bandage. I, I do. I, I know we're going to talk about you know costumes and we're going to talk about the director is sort of creative, but I think that was such a. It was such a funny yet sad yet like. That looks pretty good. I, I wonder if anybody else does that. That was actually really weird. So I had like a very. I had like a weird like a uh, weird way to feel about that. I was like, man, that's that's odd, but that's so messed up. And even Queen Anne was like, oh, fine. You look better. Thank you. She's like, oh, yeah, no problem. And I was like, that's so mean. Are you kidding me? Uh, but I guess, you know, that's what people end up kind of doing. So uh, what else do we have about the characters before we start talking more about the directive, um, director's uh, creative? Uh, one other character I definitely want to mention is uh, Nicholas Holt as Lord Harley. Um, my God, uh, every single time he was on screen, just his presence alone was making me crack up. Uh, if, if it's him wearing his goofy powdered wig and having his rouge cheeks and everything and his cane and just being tall and lanky in a very low ceiling castle everywhere, um, Nicholas Holt was hilarious in this movie. Um, him, like, his walk with Abigail outside when they're first talking about, like, how can she be of use to him to uh, make sure the queen votes the right way. And then all of a sudden at the end of the walk, he just pushes her into a ravine. <laughs> oh my God. I was just so fucking hilarious. Or when he's like just in uh parliament and, um, the, um, and he's leader of the opposition in parliament trying to get the war to end. And he's standing there. And while, um, Lord, I think it's Lord Hawthorne, uh, Hawthorne or something like that, uh, is talking about the need for war. And he's just sitting there with his cane, just rubbing it up and down in front of him. <laughs> um, and it's, a uh, oh, man, he just gives a great comedic performance throughout every scene that he's in. And, uh, like even him just uh, creeping up on Abigail's door, I thought was just amazing. Where like he's just standing out there once uh, Abigail's future husband walks out of her door for the first time. He's just standing there automatically, saying like, "So what did she say?" <laughs> and uh, every like one of his mannerisms, I just enjoyed so much. And I I'm baffled that he's not nominated for this role, and I hope that he does get nominated. Uh, in something because he definitely deserves it. He was just the fun of this movie. He just made it for me. I like that his character was much more, like was more of the scenery, but also it made it made it the movie a lot funny because he was just kind of in the background. He had a lot more physical comedy. He still had lines, and he although he thought that he was trying to kind of um, 
be a main character, a key character. He clearly was not. You know, we all know it was about Lady Sarah, Abigail, and Queen Anne. Um, so I like that he was like a background character, but at the same time, we love to see him on screen. He was doing something crazy, but he didn't play it as uh, boisterous or as uh, uh, character actor as much. It was very straight character he was playing. He was serious, but he looked yeah. hilarious. He looked ridiculous, but he was serious about it. And I like that line of when a comedic performance comes in because we can easily have a character actor that's being really all over the top, but who somebody looks crazy, but he's still, you know, he still has a threat, right? He pushes her down there. He he has like a presence with him, uh, and especially he was trying to ha- like get his point across. I thought that was also even better. Um, but I'm glad the fact that as even overall that we, although we see that there's you know men who like fight in wars and there's men and there's actual actors that was in this movie, there was just a sole focus on the female characters and the female actresses. And I really like the fact that you really don't see that too often. Um, even in another one of his movies, the main character was, it was all males and it was at a, uh, spoiler for the lobster, sorry, but they were at like an actual, um, I guess it was like a cult sort of thing and all the males and the females would just randomly wed and they would just kind of have to have sex at the same – every time just because. So it was a, another weird movie. But if you haven't seen The Lobster, it's pretty hilarious. It was also kind of out there. Um, so yeah, I, I like the fact that the men was – because kind of like in the background uh, and we actually had a chance to kind of really look at and see – these actresses just kind of do their thing, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I love Nicholas Holt. He had the honor of saying uh, one of the best uh, lines of the movie, which was uh, coining the term construct, which I thought was really hilarious. <laughs> um, I also, um, this was the first time I've seen Joe Alwyn, who I guess is, I just was Googling him and I guess he's in, Boy Erased and Mary Queen of Scots as well. So apparently a big year for him. Um, but, you know, I thought he was fine, but I, that's Taylor Swift's boyfriend is the only reason I knew him before. Um, he is really good looking. So I, I get that. Um, and then just off of what you were just saying, Warren, like, I think it was so, and I was very conscious of it in the movie. I was just like soaking it up. Not only was it like almost all the screen time was on the three women, but they were all unlikable. They were all shitty in different ways. Mm-hmm. And like, to me, that was just, and I feel this way when I, you know, when I see, you know, a movie with a lot more like representation of like people of color, it's like when you just get to see multiple permutations of a certain type of person that's previously been sort of crammed into you know, two or three stereotypical roles. It's just so, it's just so exhilarating to just even in the moment, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing these three crazy bitches being crazy bitches, not about men, like crazy bitches Mm -hmm. about power and manipulation and making their own way in this shitty world. And like, it was just, I thought it was just so fun to be able to be watching that. And having, as you said, Warren, having the men sort of relegated to these sideline, you know, comedic roles. It was great. It's just nice to see the movie that's like not about the men of it, especially it's a movie, excuse me, especially it's a movie about like the Queen Anne, right? And I think previously we've seen a lot of other kind of sources and a lot of other movies about the Queen, you know, even for an example, right? Uh, Brylin, we talked about The Crown. Right. And even for the crown, there was so much focus on, you know, 
Mm, what's his name? Matthew. Oh yeah, uh, Prince Philip. Prince, Prince uh, Philip. Yeah, the Prince Philip. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of focus. I mean, he literally had episodes that was dedicated to him to the point where it felt like you know Claire Foy's character took the back seat to that. And I'm like, come on, come on, bro. Like we we don't really need it that too much. But you know, I love that show, so I'm not gonna shit on it too much. Um, but I'm glad that you know. This was more of the, you know, men in this background were just kind of archetypes that would just didn't really understand how the world works. Whereas what's happening between these three women, shit was going down and they were running. They were literally running the entire um, they were controlling wars. And she even uh, Abigail even used as an analogy of, you know, it's like coming late to a party. And I like the fact that it was like, oh, but it wasn't like she didn't understand the concepts of war. It was more like, oh, they understand it so much that even the men was like, it's not likely. Actually, it is much like this even more so. So they use that. Uh, you know, we talked about the different levels of like the uh, the bunnies, right, and the different sort of visualizations between that and the visualizations of rubbing her legs and the visualizations of how women – surprise, 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 right? It's 2018. Surprise. Women know what they're doing and I like that we can actually see that on the screen and I like the fact that he can give them the ability to have their own say. We can just literally have a scene with three women and they're doing their own things but at the same time still have those comedic moments uh, and I think one of the things, you know, as we're going to transition to talk about the director, I think one of the funniest moments I liked because it was a very simple scene and it was just – a little bit of dialogue, some physical comedy used to be like an uncomfortable sort of scenario, but you can clearly see that, you know, the seething face of Abigail sitting outside the tub when Lady Sarah comes in and kind of slides into the uh, the tub of mud, right? And they're just having like kind of a mud bath and they have like the mustaches and the things that they're um, like making fun of men. And I'm like, this is great. Like you don't see this. Like it's very simple and it's a stereotypical like comedic uh, – uh, almost like a, it's like kind of a Three Stooges thing, but it's a little bit different. But it's clearly like they're there, three women who are the most the most powerful at the time, sitting there making fun of all these men, and I thought it was great. So I, I'm glad that the, the, he can give us, um, and there's writing involved too. So I'm glad that the creators of this movie can give us these moments that I'm like, oh shit, like, and it looked gorgeous too, especially because everything was white and the only thing that was brown was the mud in there and the contrast was amazing. So the fact that we can get like subtle scenes like this, that they, they said probably 15 words maybe, but it's such a powerful scene just for the live with these characters. I thought that was great. I love that scene too, because it was like, um, again, I think that showed just, yeah, of course, Lady Sarah was super anxious to get back in her favor, but that was real chemistry. And it was a uh, reminded me of the bathtub scene in Star is Born where she's uh, putting makeup on him. Like, just these people actually mm. have real chemistry. And in general, I just loved how it was three women. Um, you know, at least two of them were queer. One of them was pretending to be queer. And it wasn't about, it wasn't this against all odds, you know, oh, aren't they so brave? Or, you know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even about that. I mean, the queer thing got brought up at the end when um, there was some threat of exposing, um, of Lady Sarah kind of threatening to expose the queen. But mostly it was just like telling their story and not, you know, because I think that's sort of that halfway point where we spend a lot of time celebrating movies about 
oh, you know, it's it's a queer character, but it's all about their trauma and their tragedy. Or, oh, it's a woman, and look how she's defying the odds. Mm-hmm. And this was just like, nope, they're just living their lives, and we're going to watch them be them. And that was just so fun to watch. Yeah, I really like that. What else do we want to talk a bit about? Um, so I'm going to say three for three, Yorgos Lanthimos. His creative. So, what else do we want to talk about his him as a director? I'm going to toss it to you, Brylin. Yeah. So, this is the first Yorgos uh, film I've seen, uh, and I was kind of blown away that even though this is a period piece, he's using some very um, he's making some weird modern choices and things that are like baffle you at first, and but then you start to think about it, it's like, oh, that means a lot. Um, I just love that you have this sprawling castle that has these dark corridors. Uh, everything's candle lit. Having even like a hidden um, passageway between Lady Sarah's uh, room and the Queen's room I thought was used very effectively. But also I thought it was really neat that out of all the things to use to frame the shots, he's using fisheye lens, which usually I see in skateboard videos, and that's it. Um, he's <laughs> yeah. using a fisheye lens to uh, follow people around in this uh, in this world. And, I, and at first I was like, wait, what the hell is he doing? And it works. It actually gives you some skewed like perception of these, uh, these uh, wealthy, like, very important, powerful people, but also it kind of adds the twistedness of them to it visually, which I think is really, really cool. And it's kind of like you're, you're supposed to see all this unfold from the perspective of the bunnies, which I think would be a funny thing to think about. Um, But uh, also like things that I thought were really neat um, that like just baffled me at first, like, um, out of the blue, there's a Soul Train line going on <laughs> with all of oh these. Oh my gosh, I love it. Stuff. Yes. Um, oh, I love that scene so much. <laughs> they're throwing oranges at a naked dude one time for what? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It's hilarious. Um, and the final scene that's literally just almost like a picture that he actually just shapes layers upon layers where you see Abigail and the queen and then it's layered over by the bunnies and it starts to warp Mm. around and everything. And you're like, huh, that's weird. But then you start to think about it. It's like, whoa, that's actually pretty cool that how he did that. And it means a lot just having that one scene. So I thought that was a really amazing way of how to actually finish a film uh, that we're just going to leave it at this. This is actually pretty much all that this movie means in one still shot that Mm -hmm. you're going to take away from it. And I thought that was amazing as well. Um, I also thought, even though the music is not original, it's all classic pieces. They pick the, they, they uh, arrange the right pieces to give you these playful feelings while going into a scenario. And then they just slap you in the face with these very like dark, dramatic, um, um, uh, notes that actually play through like the cruelty of the characters and the twistedness of uh, what's going on, the manipulations, but also at the same time, there's this very uh, harpsichord, uh, just chipper feel to the music all at once. And it's just, 
um, it just uh, shakes you to the core because you're like, am I supposed to laugh? Am I supposed to feel bad for these people? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I like this character? Do I hate this character? And it just, um, it just complements everything that's going on really well. I think. Yeah. I love that. uh, I love that saying, Brylin, because we see some, sometimes you see some sort of transformational work that you're not entirely sure how to feel, right? You're not entirely sure what to say. You're just kind of experiencing you're in the moment, but it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about any of these characters. And then I think to myself, I don't know what, how I'm supposed to feel about myself. How the hell am I supposed to talk about this movie with other people? And then I just really go inward, right? It's it's some of these sequences that they mean so much. I think to me, I'm like, oh, I had a really like I had a really good time. Like the dancing sequence there. I had a really good time with that dancing sequence. That was kind of fun. It was really uh it literally, I know <laughs> this is an odd sort of comparison, but the only other time we saw a Soul Train line was in Black Klansman, and I really loved that one. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, it's kinda like Black Klansman, it's kinda weird. But he actually put in like and they had huh, choreographed dances, but they were super serious about it. So it felt like as a whole, a lot of the actors and performers in this movie were having a great time. But the way that they played it was, oh, this is what we normally are supposed to do. So it was such a weird complex of emotions because as this ridiculousness has happened, that's on like the first level, right? The actors and performers were in there as if, well, this is how, you know, people of the court are supposed to dance and how they're supposed to um, portray. And then you see how that's affecting the queen on a lot of different sort of um, – levels that she either a can't participate she has a, a some sort of affinity to music that she just can't quite kind of share and you see her like kind of lash out and it's funny in the moment oh. and then when you say like, link these scenes together you're like oh shit this this is really sad this is like kind of affecting her and so yeah, like when she yells at the children yeah in the courtyard and, and it's it started so nicely and then she's like stop it stop it and it's funny how she's screaming but at the same time you're like man actually Queen Anne is kind of feeling some way that she just doesn't know – she doesn't quite understand how to express herself. And that's also very sad too um, to the the ending sequence, right? And I was so torn between that because I really wanted Abigail to like, ah, you know, she's been this bad sort of character that we're all kind of against her. But she was just trying to kind of get out of this. Like somebody told her – I don't know what that asset's called, but her asset, she was like burning her hands in the beginning. I thought that was pretty terrible. Oh, so yeah. she's trying to get out of there and she just kind of went too far and it didn't – although she like ascended up the actual ladder, she didn't go anywhere. Like she was still the same sort of person and none of that meant anything. Um, and I think that was her – at least her look of it, and that's also some great sort of silent sort of character work and facial expressions. But Emma Stone has some great facial expressions. It's great. Um, I thought that was also kind of conveyed pretty well in that final sequence. And I think, if anything, I would just tell everybody just to look at the final sequence. They have no idea what the rest of the movie is about, but they can still get at least a few points from there. So that's how powerful I think that final, um, that ending sequence was. So that was great. Yeah, I think I just absolutely loved his, like, style applied to a period piece I think sometimes period pieces have this tendency to treat historical characters as if they were completely different species than us and I love this because it really humanized the past and I think it showed yeah these you know obviously it's his style too like if he were making a movie about now you know which he has there those characters don't 
that doesn't look like our lives and they don't act like we act, but it was humanized so much. And then it was like, yeah, these people are goofy as hell. They're doing weird choreography. They're throwing oranges at each other. They're, they're petty. Um, they wear, they wear weird shit. They like enjoy weird trends. They wear these funny wigs. Like they're weird and we're all just like human and petty and neat and insecure I thought the Queen's reaction to that dance scene, I thought that was like, just again, like he uses the sort of ups and downs so well of your, they're supposed to be serious and you're laughing at them. Mm-hmm. And then she's upset and you're kind of laughing at her for being upset. Mm-hmm. But then I think when you look back at it, it's like, oh yeah, she not only can't dance because of her disability, she wants to be dancing with Lady Sarah and that's not an option. And so it ends up being kind of, it just really plays with your emotions in a lot of ways, which I really loved. Um, just in general, I think like historical movies need to take themselves way less seriously um, and just recognize that, look, it wasn't, these people were still human and they were still like weird and quirky and had all the sort of complicated interpersonal dynamics that we have um, just in a different you know, different set of constraints. One last thing I want to mention about like uh, just the cinematic style of this movie is that the title cards that they use um, has a very unique font to it. That's also just very simple and stark at the same time. And just how they actually just put up the first, like the majority of letters. And then there's just a few letters that fade in to finish the sentence and everything. At first I just, I was kind of just uh Apathetic, and I was like, oh, yeah, those are title cards. That was a choice he made. But more and more as this movie went along, I even started finding myself laughing at the title cards. It's yeah. just like they had these witty phrases to them, and like even just the, the fading in and like how awkward they were to put these like kind of modern styling title cards into this type of film, I started to enjoy as well. So I didn't even realize that that was going to be a part that meant so much to me by the end of this movie. I I loved it because it felt like it was almost like a small game that was happening. Like, ooh, yeah. how is this like going to be like incorporated <laughs> into a scene? And some of it was like super blatant. <laughs> like, that's going to get infection. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> is that what this title that this chapter is about? Uh, but I like it because I felt like the title cards as a whole didn't for the majority of the time didn't really matter what the heck was going on in the scene so it was some oddly like some weird misdirection but i thought it was also funny that they put they took the time to put in those title cards for something so simple as the opening line of a chapter that says oh that's going to get infected it was like oh but that it i'm sure now i do not want to look too much into this but i'm sure there's like a deeper meaning but i hope that it's not yeah. just because I, w- I just wanted him to put like a title card just for the fact of hey i like title cards here so let's make it a little bit more random uh and maybe that was like a little bit more of the quirky director so i thought that was cool yeah i'm curious to see if he put a codex in those like if the letters that are fading in uh like form words for each title card or if they all make one word or phrase at the very end that you're supposed to get out of it. So I'd love to watch the, all those title cards back to back again and just take them apart. I mean, we can do that. We have, <laughs> te- we have the technology. We have the YouTube. <laughs> we, we have YouTube or YouTube? YouTube. Oh, it's like we have the band YouTube. That's weird. <laughs> I know Bono. 
<laughs> you know him personally, huh? He's a, a work friend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about directing before we get into our lasting thoughts? I have one more thing I just remembered, which I guess is on the writing front. Yeah. One of the hardest, one of the funniest parts where I laughed the hardest was when after uh, Abigail has sort of gathered the whatever leaves or herbs for the queen's gout and she's just sort of standing by in a hallway um the queen's walking by and she does this little fake cough and she's like oh i'm sorry i must have caught a cold when i was gathering the herbs for your leg that was so great (laughs) oh i was just like absolutely losing my mind like it was so funny it was just so – I felt that that was like, – especially because I was like fairly early on. And I was like, oh, man, is this is this what this movie's going to be about? Because that's ridiculous. But I enjoy it because it was so blatant. It was so obvious. So uh, I like that. And I'm glad it wasn't all about that. But you can see exactly where some of the things are going, especially when they talk about the hunting uh, and the fact that she was getting better at hunting, right? There's some imagery there too. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. So what do we got? Lasting thoughts for the favorite. Currently in theaters for right now, would you recommend this movie? If you would recommend this movie, what's a, another movie that you may want to have somebody to go take a look at before they do? Uh, I would say um, <clears throat> for me, the favorite, uh, this is definitely one of the best movies of the year. Uh, you should definitely go see it. Um, I think that for a year that I felt like comedy has been fun, but kind of formulaic. It's great to see a movie uh, that for a long period of time takes a genre and turns it on its head. And this is a comedy. Uh, And it's, uh, it's, it's really cool to see someone just have a fresh take on what comedy means and how you can frame it. Uh, Even if it's done in the past that it's actually feels very fresh and modern, I think is, amazing and it's also really cool to see that there's also a very in-depth story here that you have a lot of cool complex characters that you want to root for or you want to hate and that you'll love them all for what they do uh coming out of this movie as well so it just goes to show that comedy doesn't have to be surface level it can be very thought-provoking and full of depth as well damn very well said emma um, a couple of threads of, you know, movies that this reminded me of. One is um, sort of the element of, you know, hey, you know, people in history weren't always, you know, they weren't always dusty and stoic. And you can sort of add a fresh modern perspective to it. I think um, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette came to mind of like sort of and also going towards this sort of gilded cage element of a woman in power. Um in terms of um, one thing I really loved about it was just I think we tend to think that because society, you know, historically societies were, you know, more repressive in certain ways, um, you know, we tend to think of it as linear. Um, but actually, you know, people have been queer forever, and um, in some ways, I read a really interesting interview with a historian about this movie, and she says. You know, in some ways, um, queer relationships were actually more acceptable because they didn't threaten um, sort of the lineage and the the Mm. familial lines. And so along those lines of just sort of complicating our ideas of, oh, you could never get away with, you know, 
going outside of the gender binary or, you know, having alternative like sexualities. I thought the Danish girl um, scored mm. that well in terms of saying, oh, actually, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, there were more possibilities than we think historically. And what a soundtrack. I love the Dana score soundtrack and score. Um, that was a phenomenal movie. So good call. Good call. Um, yeah, I get a, you know, if I can kind of mix both your sort of views, I was really glad the fact that we can see. I, I, I really glad the fact that it wasn't like an issue of uh, people just being, you know, queer, like we can have actual relations uh, for between, you know, three, you know, female characters without anything comedic about it. Um, and it felt like there was some serious sort of repercussions, especially like kind of leading up to people are caring about each other and there was not an issue about it. And the, the, the one time that there was a bit of a threat, she kind of threw it away because it could kind of get out. And, um, I can see that that's how, you know, the queen may feel, but it, it felt like everybody knew in the castle and nobody cared what I thought was pretty cool. Um, because I know a lot of other people like kind of found out too, but you know the fact that we saw how Emma Stone found out was like a little bit different. But I love the movie. Um, I definitely would say please go watch this movie, especially because I think as all throughout we get some crazy, crazy good you know actor and actresses, like some great performers all around in the movie itself. Some great writing. Some of the set pieces are also kind of pretty amazing. Like even the costuming and. Uh, just some of the scenes that they kind of just shot with, especially the lighting was great. Um, I just looked at the last few movies from this director and he's had the lobster, which I really loved killing of a sacred deer, which I haven't seen yet. And now the favorite, and those are his last three films from 2015 to 2018. So definitely on the trending up because yeah. those are all great. I, I heard that killing of the sacred deer was also great. Cause Emma, you saw it, right? Yeah. I really yeah. loved it. So, I, I definitely want more of his work. I want more of everybody, basically, in this movie. Uh, I'm all about it. Uh, so I definitely want more of that. Definitely go check out this, especially because a lot of the stuff that we get this year, much like Brylin was talking about, was not original. We now have a, a bit of a different original story that you may have, you may not know. So definitely go check out The Favorite. I think you will be pleasantly surprised. And a lot of people better win some awards for this because I'm pretty sure they won't. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, a lot of people, a lot of people should. Yeah, I want to say again just how clever the writing was. And I was reading somewhere earlier that um, the scriptwriter, she finished the first draft of the script in 1989. Mm. And for it to feel like so fresh and like vibrant this day wow. is amazing. And I was just looking back at just like some scenes and I, I just started laughing just reading some of the words that, that – oh, just remembering the scenes. Like when the queen sees the page boy and is like, did you look at me? Don't look at me. <laughs> like slaps it up. And he's like, look at me. Don't look at me. And it's just so done so well. It's, it's brilliant like all the way through. This is one of these complete movies that I just adore. Yeah, and especially kind of perfect for the holidays and it's kind of a slower time to get more people out in the theater, especially if they're home, they're trying to watch a maybe not. I wouldn't necessarily call it a family movie, but I think a lot of the families should watch this movie together just to get a bit of a new perspective and a new sense of a movie itself. Because a lot of the things that's come out this year is either kid friendly or superhero. Right. Where is that kind of in between? What else do we have? Or horror. Right. Where is that in between? What else do we have? And we have this sort of niche of a movie that's starting to emerge more and more that people feel like is an independent, but it's it's not. And not saying it's nothing bad about being an independent movie. But again, 
more theaters should have this movie. I was really pissed that not a lot of theaters didn't have this movie. So what the fuck? So I'm just going to throw that out there. And with that, we have been a Down, down in Front podcast. Thanks so much for joining in. Brylan, where can people find more of your work on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me wearing my fanciest powdered wig on Twitter at Brylund, B-R-I-L-U-N-D. Uh, you can also find me posting a bunch of many movie and TV reviews and wonderful memes on Instagram at I am Brylund. There was one that you posted, I think it was today, with the two wolves. And I think there was another one. <laughs> those are dogs, <laughs> the, not wolves. Those dogs. Ah, they look like wolves. Same family. There was another one that you posted that really made me giggle. So I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for what you do, Rylan. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Emma, where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find my Badger makeup tutorials on uh, Instagram at Emma D. Hall. And I'm on Twitter also at Emma D. Hall. Oh my gosh. Do I look like a badger? Yes. Yes. And sometimes you look like a badger. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> I thought that was such a great line too. I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Good call. Man, that was such, such a great callback. Such a great callback. Check out more of our work at downinfrontpodcast.com. There you can find their video teasers. You can find their information for our music. We have little blogs up there along with our GameCast information. So you can check out some older videos we have there. Our friends with Blends as well as My News Band. Uh, if you like what we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore IDAFP. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash downinfrontpodcast. If you want to become a patron, you want to actually kind of donate some money because it is giving season and somebody's birthday is coming up, not pointing any fingers, uh, definitely become a patron. Patreon.com slash Down in Front Podcast. Uh, we also have been posting our some of our episodes, and we're going to see how if people actually like it because I didn't realize too many people listen to Anchor. But check out actually our work at Anchor at Anchor.com uh, slash Down in Front Podcast. So that's definitely pretty cool. We're going to see if we can have some more kind of undergo reviews. So super pumped, super excited. Um, our next review will be Brylin. Our next review will be. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh my gosh, Emma loved that movie. I'm super excited. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night. I feel like we didn't talk about the lobster races. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was like...